Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be worshiping with you all today. And um, like all the lights are on, so it's really bright. And it's great uh, to be in this building. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I experienced uh, or celebrated 11 years of holy matrimony. Um, um, we uh, celebrated at the Cheesecake Factory which is a couple steps up from where I took her out the night I proposed, which was Victoria's Seafood on Kam Ave. So it took 11 years, but uh, hopefully in the next decade, maybe we can go somewhere with more stars behind the restaurant quality. Um, But uh, I have the great privilege and joy today of kicking off a new series for our church. Uh, If you've been here over the last uh, couple of months, we've been studying in the Old Testament a genre of literature called the wisdom books. Uh, We looked at the Song of Songs, Uh, early in the spring, and then um, for the last five weeks, we've been reading uh, Ecclesiastes together. And both of these books were written by King Solomon, who is known to be the wisest man who ever lived. God gave him the gift of wisdom. Uh, So today, we're starting a new series that's going to take us through to the end of the summer, uh, into September. And uh, it's uh, better known as uh, uh, the Epistle of John, or the Epistles of John, because if you look in the back of the Bible, there are three letters, one John, two John, and three John, And uh, they're sort of classified under this uh, uh, genre called the letters uh, of the New Testament. And we're going to be studying his first letter, or better, maybe better called his first sermon to the church. And so if you have a Bible, will you join with me um, in John chapter 1? We're going to read just the first four verses today, and it's really the prologue to his sermon. It's this introduction. And uh, what I'm going to do today is just simply set up the series, and then next week uh, Danny's going to come and really start uh, helping us to kind of work through these chapters, and uh, it's going to be a great series. So here's what John writes in the opening verses of this sermon. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now let me just explain what's going on here real quickly. We're going to look at a couple more verses, but the first four verses of John is really one long run-on sentence. Even though in English we've got some punctuation here, it's really one long run-on sentence, and the first verb doesn't occur until the third verse of this opening prologue. But look at what he says. He says, this we proclaim. So this is really a sermon And unlike the other letters of the Bible, this doesn't say this is from John to the church in so-and-so or to my dearly beloved. He just begins by saying, hey, this is what I'm preaching to you today. So we call it a letter, but it doesn't really have all the distinguishing characteristics of a letter. It really reads more like a sermon or a word of exhortation to not just a church, but what appears to be lots of churches that this uh, sermon, this written sermon or this written manuscript was passed around. And notice how John begins it. He says, that which was from the beginning. He says, I'm not going to tell you anything new that you haven't heard before. I'm not making this up. This is no new thought or wisdom. This, what I'm about to share with you, has always been since the beginning. And then he says, this message, this word that I'm about to preach, is something that I have heard I have seen with my eyes, I have looked at, and I have touched with my hands. In other words, John is about to preach Jesus, and he's letting his audience know that I heard Jesus speak personally, I saw him visibly before me, we lived together, we worked together, we traveled together, 
And I've even touched him. We gave high fives and pats on the back and and warm hugs and embraces when we needed to. So in other words, John is saying, I am one of the apostles and I am one of the people that walked and talked with Jesus and I am going to share with you something that's heavy on my heart. Now remember, John also wrote the Gospel of John and when he opened the Gospel of John in chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so he's opening up in very similar fashion here. He's saying, that which was from the beginning, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life that appeared, that we've seen, that we testify, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Okay, this is just the beginning, the prologue. And then he says in verse 3 and verse 4, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So right in the prologue, he says, the reason why I'm writing this sermon, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because, one, I want to have fellowship with you. And again, fellowship is about sharing something in common. It's about partnership. It's about commitment to something that's that's in common with all of us. And here, in this case, it's Jesus Christ. His work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. John is saying, I want to fellowship with you. I want to connect with you around these truths of who God is, of who Jesus is. And then he says in verse 4, I'm writing this to make our joy, who is he speaking on behalf of? Not only himself, but all the people reading this. So he's saying, so that we all can be full of joy. So that we could all be filled with joy or joy abundant. That is why he's writing this, so that we can fellowship together and so that we can have joy together. Okay? So let's pray, and then I'm going to do a few more things and introduce this. Lord God, we thank you for uh, this word that John has written, uh, not only for the church of his day, but for the church of our day, uh, that we might be able to read and study and examine um, all of these verses together so that we may have fellowship with one another, but a fellowship that depends on you and your Son and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst, but also, Lord God, so that our joy may be complete. God, so many of us here uh, are unhappy. Uh, We lack joy. And, Lord, we are searching for it. We're looking for it. Lord, we feel like it's been taken from us. But God, we know that all of those joys that we search after in this world are temporary and passing. The one true joy, Lord, that we can find is the life that we have in your Son. And so, Lord, as we begin today this new series of teachings on the first book of John, Lord, may we understand what it means to have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may we understand what it means to live that out, to know that truth, to live it out among one another in community. And God, Lord, may that joy, that divine joy that only you can give really be what gives us peace, what gives us hope, what gives us an excitement to continue following you the rest of the days of our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Amen. So let me introduce John to you, okay? John, who was John? Well, this is a picture that I got off of Wikipedia. 
I doubt that's what he really looked like, but it's a work of art that's uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church. So we just use that. John was uh, the son, uh, the second son of Zebedee and Salome. He had an older brother, and his older brother's name was James. Whoa, what's going on there? Uh, James had two parents, like most of us, and he had one older brother, like some of us. Um, and he was also related to Jesus in that they were cousins, Okay, John, who wrote this book, uh, his mom, Siloam, was sisters with the Virgin Mary. They were sisters. And therefore, Mary's uh, son, Jesus, um, was a cousin, or we could say maybe a half-cousin, because uh, God's father was really God. Uh, They were related in that way. So they probably grew up together. They probably lived in the same town. They probably pulled pranks on each other. Um, you know, they just sort of had that familial bond. And not like these days where cousins live all over the place and they never see each other. But it was at a time when families really lived in households together and kind of grew up in the same village. So he was close to Jesus from early on. Uh, John was one of the 12 disciples. Him and his older brother James were the two disciples that Jesus called first to follow him. Remember, Jesus went around from uh, town to town and village to village, and he invited disciples to join him in his movement, in his cause. And James and John were the first pair, were the first two that he called. And it probably has a lot to do with the fact that they knew each other, they had history, they had rapport. Uh, He loved John. And if you read uh, through the Gospel of John and through his letters to the church, he oftentimes refers to himself as the beloved disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. So he was one of the the 12 disciples. John wrote five books of the Bible. Five books. Can you guess what they are? John wrote the Gospel of John. John wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That's four, right? And what's the fifth book that John wrote? John wrote the Revelation of St. John. John wrote Revelation. Which means, if we do the math and we get all technical here, most of us believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. But he's actually the third most prolific writer of the New Testament. Paul did write the most books of the New Testament Bible that we have. All the letters, Romans, Corinthians, you know, to, uh, to Jude. I mean, he wrote all these, Philemon, he wrote all these books. He wrote the most books, but he didn't write the longest book. Do you know who wrote the longest book? Luke. Luke. Luke wrote the longest book, which is Acts. And uh, Luke was the second most prolific writer of the New Testament. It's actually... John, who word for word, verse by verse, has written the majority of the New Testament by like 0.5% over Luke, and just barely a hair over that over Paul. So John wrote the Gospel of John that we have, that we read, that we, you know, John 3.16. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, We're going to study 1 John this summer. And then he wrote uh, Revelation when he was exiled to Mount Patmos. And it was there, as he was serving out his sentence, that uh, God came and revealed to him a picture of the future church, uh, the the glory of heaven, and uh, the glory of God himself, and he wrote it in Revelation. So if you take all of John's writing together, he wrote most of the New Testament. So he wrote those five books of the Bible, and, uh, whoa, what's going on? And he may have been, as I was alluding to earlier, Jesus's best friend. Wow. What, what, what a title. What, what, a, what, what, you know, gosh, you put that on your resume, what else do you need? You know, Jesus' homeboy, his best friend. You know, like, I knew all his dirty secrets. 
because he didn't have any. You know, it's like, I knew everything about Jesus. Uh, we grew up together. You know, I used to scare him at night, but he was never startled. I tried, but he always knew I was coming. I don't know. I couldn't really figure that out. You know, James and I, we always tag team wrestled him, but he would always wrap us up with one arm. He was just amazingly strong. And uh, I mean, he knew everything. But uh, again, he uh, was considered to be the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. The one whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all his disciples. But remember, Jesus had a disciple-making strategy. And not only did he have 12 disciples, but within the 12, he had three that were part of the inner circle. James, John, and Peter. So it was James, John, and Peter who were able to go up the Mount of Transfiguration and see the glory of God. James, John, and Peter were also the ones that saw the raising of Lazarus. I mean, you know, these three guys, you know, got an inside scoop. And then so we have the three, we have the 12, we have the 70, we have the 500. And one one time somebody came up and said, you know, why did Jesus show favoritism? You know, why did he only, you know, spend his quality time with these three guys or those 12 guys? And, and, And then why didn't he really care about... Well, it's not a favoritism. God loves all people. God loves all his children. But this was his strategy, to make disciples. And so he invested heavily in John, James, and Peter, and they went on to be exceptional leaders of the church. He invested in the other nine, totaling 12 disciples, the 70 who followed him, the 500, and so on and so forth. That was his model of discipleship. It was a multiplication model. And so that's why we do things like small groups, groups of 12. We do accountability groups, groups of three or four, where we are sort of in concentric circles investing in one another the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. So he might have been Jesus' best friend. So this is who John is. Quick snapshot. Now, why did he write one John or two John or three John? Well, the reason why he wrote this first book, which is really more of a sermon than a letter, there are three reasons. One, he wanted to encourage his friends. If you read this book in one sitting, you'll see that the, the, the affection and the tone of the letter is, is very uh, uh, endearing, very beloved. Uh, he speaks to the church, uh, oftentimes he calls them, my dear children. And this is probably written uh, near the end of John's life, probably just before he uh, saw the revelation of God's glory and wrote the uh, revelation that we have in our New Testament. Um, But he's writing a love letter to the church, and it's very affectionate, and he wants to encourage them, and this is some of what he says. Uh, We write this to make our joy complete. I want you to be happy, and and not just happy because you're happy, but a a happiness that comes from the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. So he's trying to encourage them in their joy and in their lives, because life was tough. There was martyrdom, there was persecution, there was hardship. He also says in the second chapter, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And so he's encouraging them to live good lives, uh, to trust in Jesus and to model uh, their lifestyle and their behavior after Jesus. And then he also says in chapter 5, what's going on here? Oh my goodness. I'm trigger happy. I'm sorry. There we go. Alex, are you doing this? Okay. All right. (laughs) Alex, stop. All right, uh, I may need some help. Okay. And in chapter 5, he wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wanted to encourage me. He says, you know, guys, I know life is hard. 
I know it's tough. I know there's all kinds of wacky teachings out there that you're dealing with. I know people are leaving the church and they're leaving the faith. And he's addressing these things in the letter. But he's saying, I want you to know that your salvation is sure. There's assurance to your salvation because it's, it rests on the unfailing promise of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing this letter to encourage the church, to encourage them to live uprightly, to encourage them to find true joy, and also to encourage them by saying, hey, you have eternal life. Thank you. Thank you. So that's the first reason why uh, John writes this sermon to the church. The second reason he writes is to teach them the truth. Um, He writes this in chapter 2. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now, this is probably uh, written around 90 AD, which is roughly two or three generations after Jesus had come, after he was crucified on the cross, dead and buried, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And so we're talking about roughly 50 or 60 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And at that time, people started to really doubt Is Jesus ever coming back? Did he really ever come in the first place? And there's all these mixed theories and all these false teachings. And there was a group of teachers at that time that started to arise called the Gnostics. And this was a really, really smart, very well-educated group of people. And their theory was that everything earthly, everything material is tainted with sin, evil, and brokenness. Everything. And in a lot of ways, we would affirm that. We would say, yeah, there's nothing in this world that is pure, that is good, that is holy. Everything is touched by sin and everything is fallen. But they would take that theorem and they would build on that and they would say, therefore, Jesus was not flesh. Because if God took on flesh and blood and became a human like you and me and had a material body and bones and tissue, then he would be tainted with sin. So they're denying the incarnation that Jesus actually came into this world as a human being, as a baby born in a manger. And if they therefore denied the incarnation, it almost denies everything else Jesus did. Did he really die? Was he just spirit? He was just a projection. And if you touched him, you would go through him. You couldn't really hug him because he wasn't really there. And they were coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And they were saying... He couldn't have been because if he was flesh and blood, like you and me, he would have been a sinner. And if he was a sinner, he couldn't have been God. And there are all these like really uh, confusing arguments that were circulating. And as these very well-reasoned scholars and skeptics were teaching these things, people started leaving the church. They started saying, I think he's on to something. That's right. You know, how could Jesus take on flesh and blood? And so people would leave the church and they would follow that leader or that teacher and they would form their own sect or they would have flawed theology and they would become a cult or they would become a a group of, of radicals that were going astray. So John wanted to teach them the truth. He said, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything somebody says and comes and tells you, hey, this is a word of God or this is from the spirit of God. He says, test the spirit to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world and they're trying to deceive you and they're trying to lead you astray. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now he's talking particularly about people who are denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ the Son. So he's saying, if they deny him in any way in this particular regard, that spirit is not of God. Do not follow, do not accept, do not hold to that spirit's 
teaching. So John is not only there to encourage them to continue on the path, but he wants to teach them the truth about Jesus Christ, that he was fully God and fully man. Not half man, half amazing, but fully man, fully amazing, fully God, fully the Son. Thirdly, and lastly, he wrote 1 John to show them how to live. Again, uh, the people of God, when you get them together at first, it's all fun and games, it's exciting, and this is oftentimes the way it feels when you first come to church, isn't it? Or when you come to the church for the first time, or you come to a new church, it's always really fun, it's really exciting, you're meeting new friends, high five, yeah, let's go out to eat, yeah, let's go to the movies, and it's all fun and games, until after a few months or a few years, he said, she said, he stabbed me on the back, he stepped on my toes, you know, he, he started spreading rumors, and then what happens? It's not so much fun and games anymore, right? And people start uh, uh, violating each other's trust. And they started saying, they start saying nasty lies about each other. And then the church turns into two churches. And then two churches turns into eight churches. And then you've got all these churches that can't be one church because he said, she said. And not only is that a modern phenomenon that many of us are familiar with, but that was also what was happening with the church that Jesus had come to start with Peter. And they weren't loving each other. And so repeatedly throughout these books, you're going to hear John calling them to love one another. And that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, I can like you. I might be able to get along with you. I can worship with you if I'm sitting in this corner and you're sitting in that corner, but I don't want to be in small group with you. I don't want to go out to dinner with you. But John is calling people to a radical way of life, to really love one another. Now, I'll admit that, yeah, there are people that are hard to love in this life. But there is no cop-out where we're supposed to just avoid them. I think when we read the scriptures, the commands are very clear. Love one another. Lay down your life for your friends. We're going to be reading this in the book that John wrote. It's a radical kind of love. And he says this. He who does what is right is righteous just as he, Jesus, is righteous. So he's calling them to live a righteous way of life, but not just a moral righteousness, a righteousness that's based on Jesus, uh, the model, the perfect model, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And then he also says in chapter 3, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother or sister in Christ. So again, John is saying, this is how we know if we belong to God. And one of the ways he says that we can test this love or this, this, this belonging, this ownership, is do you love one another? Now again, that doesn't mean, you know, people can't get on your nerve or people can't annoy you or they can't hurt your feelings. Yeah, people can hurt your feelings. Other Christians can hurt your feelings. They can be pretty annoying. They can be pretty much in your face at times. You know, they can be pretty, like, stuck up and you just don't like being around them. I, I, I know. I, I know that's what you think of me. I know. But, but... We are called to a radical kind of love. And that's why I think our staff, as we were praying over what we wanted to teach this summer, we all sort of had the sense that one John would be really good for us. Because it's going to hammer in almost every single week this, this exhortation, this truth, this teaching that we have to love one another. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that that's not easy. If you're new, you're probably thinking, hey, everybody here is awesome. But just wait till you really get to know us. We're still awesome but we're also sinners. All of us are flawed. All of us are wounded and hurting. All of us are selfish. And yet, our fellowship is not 
in what we do for a living. Our fellowship is not in what we like to do after church on Sunday or the kind of food that we like to eat for lunch. Remember, our fellowship, and this is what John is writing about, is found in Jesus Christ the Son. And when our fellowship rests on Christ the Son, our joy then can be complete. Our love can be a better witness to the world. John writes this in his gospel. He says, the world will know, and he's quoting Jesus, that you are my disciples if you love one another. John says this repeatedly. He writes about it. He emphasizes it over and over and over. And this means so much to me because I've grown up in the church. I've been in the church all my life. And in the church, in my experience, I've experienced some of the most heartbreaking things that you could ever possibly experience. Maybe even worse and and more uh, depraved than I would even experience in my relationships outside the church with non-believers. I've seen people in church really rip one another apart, literally get into physical fights, literally families, I'm talking about blood-lined families, falling apart because of issues in the church. And I've always made this commitment and promise to the leaders at our church and our staff, my family. I was like, you know what? Like, let's always serve this church in such a way that we will love one another and that we don't just become another statistic that splits apart because we can't get along, because we can't love. And so this book of the Bible is very important because it is going to challenge us to really understand more fully what it means to be Christians to be devoted to Jesus Christ, to abide by his teaching and to live a righteous life. There's going to be a lot of good theology in the next coming weeks. And there's going to be a lot of good practical application, which I hope is very challenging to all of us. And my hope and desire is that we, all of us, like John aimed to do, will make not only John's joy, but Jesus' joy complete by receiving these words by living them out, and by being committed together through Jesus Christ's Son. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather here as a church, uh, young and old, with our kids here, with our parents here, with our our, our single brothers and sisters. Um, Lord God, uh, this is a special church. And we thank you that today uh, we can uh, just begin to understand who John was, but also why He loved the church so much and what he had to say about that great love. And so, God, would you help us not only today, but every day and in the coming weeks and months to really receive these words with humility and with grace, uh, to to know you better, to know you correctly, to know you rightly, um, and then to live out the implications of that revelation and that knowledge. Um, Lord God, we pray for our church that we may love one another and so that the rest of the world will not only know that we are your disciples, but so that the rest of the world will also know that you are a God of love because you loved us first. And so, Lord, we thank you for this uh, time, and uh, Lord, would you bless us, and would you continue to move in us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.